Father, we do thank you so much for the fellowship that we have in Christ. Thank you for the, the joy of being with one another in the household of God. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we thank you for those who are here, and those who have been going through seasons of trial like Paul and Jane, but not alone. We pray your blessing on those who are not with us today, but normally would be. We, we just uh, thank you for the family. We thank you for the family of God. Help us today as we consider a part of your holy word that can seem difficult to us and about which believers in good faith have come to different understandings. So give us a clarity of mind today and a, and a heart that wants to know and understand what you've said to us. Uh, help me to teach rightly and by the help of your Holy Spirit beyond my abilities give the hearers discernment to weigh everything by the plumb line of your word and the grace to hold on to what is good not just to know but to put into practice what we have seen to be true we pray in Jesus name Amen just a few minutes ago I asked the uh, I asked the row behind me, or most of them, not Mark, if they knew who this was. If they knew, who, who knows who this is? Yeah, see, and who, knows the, who knows the dog's name? Not, my wife knows the dog's name. <laughs> it's because I've been talking about this. And uh, this is, this is uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his little dog, Thala. His little, you see pictures of him with the dog. It's the, it, this is the only dog that has a statue in Washington, D.C. At the Franklin Delano Roosevelt statue, there's a little statue of Fallow there, too. In, uh, in 1944, uh, a Republican congressman from Minnesota, Harold Knutson, he accused on the floor of the, of the House... Uh, the president there with being extravagant, wasteful with taxpayer funds, going so far as to dispatch a destroyer, a Navy destroyer, back to the Aleutian Islands where Fala had been left accidentally. At uh, the, uh, the famous dog, you know, he's, he's the only one with a statue. That, uh, this was during the campaign, 1944 is during the campaign for Roosevelt's fourth term his fourth term as president, and, and he is, appeared before the Teamsters and he gave a speech in which he addressed this controversy of whether he spent all this money uh, and put Navy, soldiers at Navy sailors at risk and everything to, uh, you know, to go back to the Aleutian Islands to pick up this dog. Here, here's the part of the speech. This is why, I, well, you won't see why immediately, but this is why he's on the cover. Uh, FDR, he said, these Republican leaders have not been content with attacks on me or on my wife or on my sons. No, not content with that. They now include my little dog, Falloff. That was a good line. They laughed at the Teamsters. He says, well, of course, I don't resent attacks, and my family members don't resent attacks. And with emphasis, he said, but Fallah does resent it. 
He said, you know, Thala is Scottish. And being a Scotty, as soon as he learned that the Republican fiction writers in Congress and out had concocted a story that I had left him behind on an Aleutian island and had sent a destroyer back to find him at a cost to the taxpayers of two or three or eight or twenty million dollars, his scotch soul was furious. He has not been the same dog since. And he said, here's like the close of it, he said, I'm accustomed to hearing malicious falsehoods about myself, but I think I have a right to resent, to object, to libelous statements about my dog. Well, that was kind of the end of that controversy. <laughs> it sounds like Harold Knudsen, other, you know, other people making this charge, they could expect no forgiveness from FDR or from Fallah either. John chapter 20 describes one of Christ's resurrection appearances to the disciples this way. And I'm going to read John 20, 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, this is the verse today, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The question surrounding that last verse, as they came to me in the U.S. Fort question, are, are these. Was this applicable to the apostles only, or is it applicable, applicable in some way to all Christians? And if it is applicable to all Christians generally, can others lack of forgiveness of me leave me with an unforgiven offense before God? Or could I burden someone with an unforgiven sin before God because I did not forgive them? In other words, it, when you think about it a little bit, it seems a various, very serious thing if God's forgiveness is contingent upon the forgiveness of people in any way. I mean, talk about spiritual chaos. Can you imagine giving sinners veto power over God's forgiveness of other sinners? You know, what could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? If sinners could, you know, certain ones, you know, or some, all believers or some could kind of veto God's forgiveness or withhold God's forgiveness, who would be forgiven their sins by God if, if that were the way it worked, if, if God's forgiveness was contingent on obtaining the forgiveness of other people? And then not only who, who could 
have their, know that their, all their sins are forgiven, how could you be assured that of forgiveness of your sins before God if God's forgiveness could somehow be withheld by someone other than God? Now, I, I don't believe that you would have to have lived very many years before someone has something against you and they're having trouble forgiving you for it. Or maybe they're not having trouble. They're not even trying. They don't intend to forgive you. They're not going to. So that's kind of the problem with this, you know, that we people see in this verse. You know, he's, you know read, read it again. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So one of the ways Christians have, or, or at least, you know, the people in Christendom, I don't know everybody is speaking about it, all saved people perhaps, but one of the ways this verse has been handled historically is to confine its application, restrict its application to either one, to the apostles alone, say it's just for the apostles, it's not for everybody, not, you know, it's just, it, it, it was with the apostles and that's where it stayed, or to the apostles and their successors alone, think Roman Catholic Church, the apostles and their successors, or to church leaders, or, or even maybe the whole church, but, but in a certain context, about receiving people into the fellowship of the church or removing people from the fellowship of the church. But see, it's confined to certain people in certain situations, kind of restrict the application. Well, let's think about those. To confine it to the apostles alone, it does kind of clean up some applicational problems, right? If, if that were so, if we could do that, at least we wouldn't have to worry about someone else kind of damming up God's forgiveness from, from flowing over us, or we really wouldn't have to worry about we ourselves keeping someone else from being forgiven by God because we withhold forgiveness. But it, it seems like, you know, say, well, that's just for the apostles alone. It, it seems a little, when we look at it and think about it, that we would be saying it's confined to the apostles alone because we need it to be confined to the apostles alone. It's like application first and interpretation later. You know, it's like what we needed to say. And we really, if you think about it, we really don't treat other passages like that. The, the, for example, the Great Commission was given to the apostles. We don't think, we don't say, oh, that's just for them. That doesn't have anything to do with us. That's just for them. The apostles were there. That's who he told. That's who he gave authority to. And it's only for them. We don't say that. We see that, you know, it applies to us as well. Uh, aspects of Jesus' high priestly prayer were, uh, you know, were prayed really specifically about the apostles. But we don't imagine that Jesus was not including uh, everyone who would become his disciples. Uh, he, he told his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. John 14, 1. let not your hearts be troubled. You know, we don't say, no, he's just talking about them. The people he was talking to, the people in there, there you know, it doesn't, you know, our hearts could be troubled. 
No, we don't do that. So, so it's, it, it seems difficult, kind of arbitrary, right? Arbitrary. In this case, he must have been speaking to the apostles alone because it's just, if we don't, it's a mess. It's a problem. Furthermore, the apostles did not seem to operate as John 20 and 23 suggests, at first blush, suggests that they might, you know, deciding the apostles don't seem to have operated like they get to decide who's in and who's out, forgiving who they wanted with and not forgiving who they wanted. And I hope to, before, in a few minutes, I hope to show you that they, that they, how they did operate in the matter of forgiving and withholding forgiveness in, in a few minutes. All right, so, so it's confined to the apostles alone. Well, it's, you know, it works. It, it helps us out of some problems, but it, does, it seems arbitrary. It doesn't seem to hold, hold up. It, it, it didn't help that much, historically, to confine what John 20, 23 is talking about to the apostles and their supposed successors, which, you know, I said think Roman Catholic, which the Roman Catholic context would, would be the popes and, and the, the whole the structure, the hierarchical structure under the popes. Although, you know, there's a, there, there's a church here in town that it would be heresy to say so. But we're Protestants, of course. And we're on solid ground when we say that it is simply not true that Peter considered himself the pope or the vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ on the earth, the head of the universal church on earth, or anything like that. So the, so if you see, the list of popes in a Catholic context going back to, to, to Peter, or uh, St. Peter, would be very dicey, especially in the first three centuries. You know, very... Shaky, more than shaky, <laughs> manufactured, made up. But by the by, the fourth century, the the papacy was pretty much a given, and the pope had assumed authority to forgive or retained sins, and this right was recognized by by almost everybody, or at least by the majority of people who who uh, profess Christ. And, and as it turned out, the assumed authority to forgive or retain sins did not lead to much good. In 1076-77, for example, this centuries later, but just, for, just to grab an example, Pope Gregory VII brought to a head a dispute with King Henry IV, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which would be basically be kind of today Germany and kind of surrounding smaller countries around Germany. You know, the, the uh, head or the king, uh, the Holy Roman Empire or, or emperor. He, he, they were having a dispute. I won't go into the dispute between him and the pope, but the pope excommunicated him. He retained his sins. Not only of him, but of all the church officials, and this is kind of what the argument is about, all the church officials that Henry had appointed. If you were appointed by that king, you're also excommunicated. Your sins are retained. Uh, and anyone loyal to the king. 
there being no salvation outside the church, in their view, in the teaching, that meant that all of those people were ticketed for hell. Why? Because the Pope said so. And he was in charge of retaining sins or, or forgiving sins. John 20, 23, and maybe Matthew 16, too, but says that God, will, heaven backs them up in, the, in their view. Can, can you see where this power to release or retain sins leads itself to like mere political <laughs> uh, shenanigans? Power plays. Well, anyway, Henry went to, the king went to Canossa, Italy, where, where Gregory, the, the pope, was staying, and he, he stood at the gate in the snow waiting for the pope to see him and hopefully absolve him of his sins and, uh, you know, restore him uh, not only to the church's good graces but also to his own kingdom because, you know, all of a sudden, all of a sudden when the Pope did that, you know, he said, your sins are retained. Also, everybody you've appointed, also anybody who's loyal to you. He went from, it did not do much for his approval rating. Let's say that. Because <laughs> all of a sudden, instead of the king, he's the guy that's got us all going to hell. Because <laughs> our sins are retained too. Why? Because the Pope said so. John 20, 23, among, you know, the argument would be, says heaven backs him up and that's the way it is. So he goes and he stands in the snow. And you know what the Pope did? He let him stand there three days. To kind of make a point, I suspect, don't you? <laughs> he let him stand out there three days before he let him in to talk to him. And at one point, in the 14th century, there are three different popes, at least claiming, three different people claiming to be pope, each claiming to be the rightful one, each retaining the sins of the others, each sentencing the other to hell. You know, so does it clean it up very much to say, oh, it's restricted, you know, not just the apostles, you know, not just the apostles, but to the apostles and their successors. It's not for everybody, John 20. It doesn't clean it up that much. There are problems. <laughs> the basis for the selling of indulgences that so offended the priest Martin Luther in the 16th century, 500 years ago this year, was that the, the basis for it was that the Pope had authority to release people in purgatory from the penalty of their sins. That was the basis of it. Purgatory is kind of, you probably know, but if you don't know, it's an imagined kind of a stopover for people who have died, will eventually live in heaven, be in heaven, but they require a place for the remains of sin to kind of be burned off. You know, they, they, they penance. There's a penance after death. It's something they, they have to spend time in this place that for all practical purposes, if you look at the descriptions and the artwork and so forth, it looks like hell. But we used to call it popcorn hell. If you've been there long enough, once you've been there long enough, a, a century or two or four or eight or 20, you, you pop up into heaven, all, all white and clean and fluffy. Uh, purgatory is not a biblical concept. 
But the Pope used his authority over retaining or releasing of sins to authorize the forgiveness of sins for those people in purgatory in consideration of a donation which would be used for the construction of St. Peter's Cathedral, the one you see on TV on Christmas Eve. Can you, you know, when I think about this, I think, can you imagine the whole Protestant Reformation, uh, you know, kind of was set off, this, this was the match that set it off, it is a controversy over a fundraising scheme for a church building project. There is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> well, Martin Luther, in his 95 theses, 95 points of dispute with Roman Catholic doctrine and practice, he disputed that the Pope had authority to release deceased souls from purgatory. He, he hadn't come around on purgatory yet. He disputed that the Pope had that right. And then, in my opinion, he brilliantly argued, I thought this was a brilliant argument, that if the Pope does have authority to release people from the penalty of their sins, people in purgatory, why doesn't he let them all go, donation or no donation? If you have that authority... To release these poor people, these poor suffering souls from their sins. Why don't you do it? Seemed like a pretty strong argument to me. And the same argument, if you think about this question, the same argument would apply to any man or any group of men who had authority to decide who should be saved and who should not. Why would you not declare everybody forgiven? What's the matter with you? <laughs> Don't you know you're a sinner yourself? Let them all go. And, and if it's up to any man to forgive, to, to give God's forgiveness or to withhold God's forgiveness to, from anyone... Why is there a gospel? Why is there a call to believe? Why the Great Commission? Why the New Testament? Why preaching? Why any of it? Just forgive. And heaven will suppose, on this interpretation, will supposedly back you up guaranteed. So that the whole, the, the whole idea that men decide and heaven complies with the decision of men decisions of men about forgiveness or lack of forgiveness not being forgiven by God it has some it has some serious applicational um, troubles <laughs> so sometimes I'll tell you a third way it's it's restricted you know we can we can kind of confine the trouble in John 2023 <laughs> the third way it's it's restricted is to say that this refers to the divine authority of church leaders or perhaps even the whole church but restricted to issues concerning discipline in the church up to the point of actually putting people out of the church and receiving them back again on on repentance well why would you say that is there anything about church you know I read the the context did that sound like as a church discipline issue to you? 
Did you, would you have had, you know, think, well, we're talking about church discipline. We're not talking about being forgiven, like, you know, for our sins before God. We're talking about being in the church or out of the church, kicked out of the church or received back into the church for disciplinary reasons. Well, no, no. There's nothing in John 20 that would suggest that. But it is very similar to the language we find in Matthew where the context is discipline within a body of believers. And this is Matthew 18. I've got the passages written down if you want to look them up in the, in the bulletin. But here's Matthew 18, starting with 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Listen to the next verse. Truly I say to you, that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The language isn't exact, but it sounds a lot like what he says in John 20, 23, doesn't it? So the idea that some say, this is not the position I'm going to take, or urge you to take as well, but the idea is say, this must be what he's talking about in John 20 also. He must be talking. Matthew 18 is very clear, you know what we're talking about. The language is similar. He must be talking about that in John 20 as well. It's not talking about deciding who's in or out of heaven. It's just about who's in or out of the church. You make a church decision about one of these discipline issues in a careful and biblical way. If there's someone who just simply refuses to face up to his sin, he should be put out of the church, and, uh, and heaven will be fine with it. Heaven will back you up. Now, just because churches today are loath to police themselves this way, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be exercising authority that God and the Bible gives us. In 1 Corinthians 5... If you'll recall, Paul is shocked, <laughs> he's scandalized that the church has not removed an unrepentant sinner from their fellowship. Here is uh, verse 2, verse chapter 5. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In, in the adult Sunday school class past few weeks, we've been in Revelation 2 and 3, and there, in there, the risen Jesus scolds churches for failing to protect their flocks from false teachers and the, failing to exercise this authority. Church at Pergamum, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. They shouldn't. You have and uh, two fifteen, and you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You can talk about what that is, but it's to the risen Jesus. Not right. You shouldn't allow it. These people should not. They should either repent. They should they should be corrected, or they should be uh, put out. To the church at. Thyatira, the risen Jesus says, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. So there's, there is an authority that churches have and they should police themselves. They should 
they should uh, exercise it. It goes the other way too, not just kicking people out, receiving people in. Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So some people will say, oh, did John 20, 23, that's what John 23 is talking about. It has to do with the fellowship of the church, not with forgiveness of sins by God. One of, one of my favorite commentaries on the book of John from a Reformed perspective, it, it, it takes this tact. And here's what the commentator says. This authority, which according to John 20, 23, implies the right of expelling from the church and of restoring the sinner to its fellowship. When I'm reading it, I notice that implies. That's a little soft. That, that word's a little soft. He doesn't quite say John 20, 23 teaches that. He says implies that. But if you go with that explanation, at least you would be comforted that John 20, 23, in your view, does not expose you to the danger of not being forgiven by God because some, somebody else hasn't forgiven you. And it, and it guards you from the danger that you yourself might cause someone else not to be forgiven by God because you haven't forgiven them. They'd say, no, it's about being disciplined in the church, being put out of the church. And by the way, you would know if that was happening to you. <laughs> you would know that. If there's an issue that where you're going to be put out of a church or you know your fe the fellowship is going to be so that's one of the ways people handle it. Now there is another way, and we'll end with this. There is another way to understand John 20:23. 20, this is the one that seems most persuasive to me, and it does not confine it. Just try to restrict it to certain church leaders or to church administration in general. General, and that's to take it as a declarative authority to pronounce that people are or are not forgiven their sins by God and is the declarative authority to pronounce people are or not, are not under the condemnation of God for their sins. It, it's declarative, not determinative. It, I think about the role that I have at, at a wedding, that I've had at a wedding so many times, and at the end, near the end of the ceremony, I say something like, inasmuch as Cletus and Erlene. I'm saying that because I've never performed a ceremony for a Cletus, and, or, a Cletus or an Erlene. <laughs> inasmuch as Cletus and Erlene have consented together in holy wedlock, have witnessed the same before God in this assembly of loved ones and friends, have pledged their faith to one another, and have declared the same by giving and receiving a ring as the minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pronounce that they are husband and wife together. I get to pronounce them husband and wife. I don't make them husband and wife. Uh, I may say later, I married Cletus and Erlene, but I do not say what I have joined together, let no man put asunder. <laughs> I don't say that. I say what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. I have the authority to announce, uh, to proclaim, to declare with, with heaven's authority, with God's authority, what heaven has already sanctioned. 
already determined, already recognized. I don't determine it, I, I declare it. And in that way, all who are in Christ, all disciples of the Lord, not just certain ones, all who have the Spirit of God, have authority from God to declare and pronounce forgiveness of sins or the authority to declare or pronounce that sin still condemns depending on the situation. What we proclaim must be in step with the Spirit of God. We follow and proclaim heaven's verdict. Heaven does not follow us. The Greek, John 20, 23. The Greek verbs in the phrases, they are forgiven and it is withheld, are in the perfect tense. The idea of the perfect tense when it's used is, is of a completed action in the past that has continuing uh, results in the present. For example, if I said, I went to church, in the Greek, that'd probably be aorist tense. It, it's, it's an action considered as a completed whole. I went to church. But if I use the perfect tense, I would say, I have arrived at church. There's something completed in the past. I'm all done arriving. That's done in the past. I arrived an hour or two ago. I'm all done arriving. But it has a continuing result. I'm still here. <laughs> I have arrived. A past, something that happened in the past with continuing results. And so the perfect tenses in John 20, 23 carry this idea. If you forgive the sins of any, they, perfect tense, have been forgiven. And if you withhold the forgiveness of any, it has been withheld. The New American Standard Bible, famous for its wooden literalism, which leads to some clumsy-sounding verses sometimes, uh, it's famous for its kind of disregard for readability, <laughs> Here's how, here's how that verse, here's how John 20, 23 is in the New American Standard Version. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. Already. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. They have been. God forgives in the past with continuing results, still forgiven, or still not forgiven. And we proclaim, we declare, with divine authority to do just that. If you use another translation, I use an English Standard Version study Bible. Mine has a note to that same effect. These are perfect tenses. You could understand these as being, if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. If you forgive the sins of any, they have been forgiven. And we're not just dependent. You know, I don't want you to think that, oh, we're, you know, we're reduced just like we've got to go to the Greek and look for some uh, you know, uh, fancy twist, nuance in the Greek, and we've got to appeal to one certain, one certain translation to get this right. 
We're not just dependent on that because this declarative authority to proclaim forgiveness of sins or that sin still condemns is exactly what we find in the rest of the New Testament. When Peter preached at Pentecost, he did not say, you guys have crucified my Lord and I am going to hold you responsible for it. This I will not forgive. No. He said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Their problem was not with Peter. Their problem was with God. And, they, you know, it says they were cut to the heart. They said, oh, wow, they're just overwhelmed with the truth of it. They knew they stood condemned before God. They said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? No one, Peter, nor the other, no one said, no one said, Well, if you believe, I'll forgive you. And God will back up, God has promised, If I forgive you, He'll forgive you. Nobody said that. Rather, says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you. It's not promise for me. Whoever I forgive, God will forgive. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. When Peter spoke to Cornelius and the other uh, Gentiles at Cornelius' house, Peter did not say, you're you're not going to read anything like this, I forgive your sins in the name of Christ Jesus. No, before his sermon was uh, rudely interrupted by the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit who moved (laughs) before he was done speaking, I don't mean to say rudely, just uh, frivolous and he the risen Jesus Peter's talking about commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name he's declaring he's pronouncing with God's authority, with heaven's authority, with the Bible's authority, with Christ's authority, that their sins are forgiven if they believe. Let, let me show you how this, this works right now. I'll give you a demonstration of what John 2023 20, is telling us. If you are here this morning and you have not believed in Christ, or you will not believe in Christ, your sins have separated you from God. You are, no matter how you think about God, you are at a state of enmity with Him right now. Your sins condemn you before God because God is holy. And you, like, like all of us, are, are so far from holy, we can scarcely imagine what that means. And only with the help of the Holy Spirit can we feel something of the weight of our own sins. 
but make no mistake, they will weigh you down to hell. You have absolutely, if outside of Christ, you have absolutely no reason to have any hope beyond this life. And if you do not take the life ring that God has offered you in Christ, there will be no escape from God's righteous judgment on your sins. This is not my opinion. I have been sent to tell you this by God as God sent Christ. Christ sent me. I don't speak on my own authority. This is not an opinion. You're not going to be able to say, I didn't know, why didn't you tell me? I'm here and I'm telling you. Your sins stand between you and God, between you and everlasting life. If, however, you have or will resort to the way of escape that God has given faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I can say to you and do say to you with the same divine authority that your sins are forgiven. It's not a guess on my part. It's not an opinion. I, I can say to you, I can declare to you this divine truth comes from God that your scarlet sins have been made white as snow, that they've been removed from you as far as east is from west, that you're not condemned. Your sins do not condemn you. You've been saved and you will be saved from sin and death. This is, I don't speak on my own authority. It's not an opinion, but it's, it's the very authority of God himself. As the Father sent him, he sent me. That's what John 20, 23 says. It's, it's something to be able to say anything with God's authority, with heaven's authority. You be in touch with the Holy Spirit. You know what? Receive the Holy Spirit, he said. It's in step with the Spirit. But you can say, you've been commissioned to say, your sin, to some, your sins have separated you from God. You're exposed to His righteous judgment. And you've been commissioned to say with God's authority to the believing, your sins have been forgiven. You don't need my forgiveness <laughs> or the forgiveness of any man we can say this to anybody. You need God's forgiveness. I don't believe that Jesus ever told me or any other man or any other woman uh, that, or any other group of specific group of people that if you do not forgive someone, God won't forgive them either. In fact, it, it strikes me. I don't, I'm not going to start another sermon here. This is the end of this one. But I think rather the very opposite is true. What, what Jesus tells me says, if I do not forgive someone, 
He doesn't tell me if I don't forgive someone, I, heaven won't forgive me either. He says, if I do not forgive someone, God won't forgive me. <laughs> and you know, you don't need to worry if, could I expose someone? You know, you know this, what I think is a misunderstanding of John 23. Could I be exposing someone else to God's judgment because I don't forgive them? No, you expose yourself to God's discipline. If you do not forgive someone, it isn't that God won't forgive them. If you don't forgive someone, God won't forgive you. But he has given us, me, every person who is in Christ, he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation, the right and really the responsibility and the authority to proclaim both the burden and the penalty of sin. And the right and authority to proclaim forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So here's ours. Here's our, this is John 20, 23 for us. If you're not in Christ, I can tell you with God's authority, your sins separate you from God. You have no, you have no hope beyond this life. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you believe in him, if you trust in him for your salvation, I can tell you with God's authority, with heavens to back me up, that your sins are forgiven. Receive Christ, believe the message, and be saved from sin and death. Uh, Father, give, give ears to hear the authority of your word behind the words of a mere uh, human servant. May your spirit convict of sin that any outside of Christ would feel something of its weight, enough to drive them to want the freedom and rescue that is in Christ. Grant the beginnings of faith to, to every and any willing heart. Increase the faith of the believing to share the gospel with a boldness fitting the divine authority that abides in the good news of Christ's death for sin and resurrection from the dead. We pray in his holy and powerful name. Amen.